Zen book, Babylon's Banksters, The Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religion by Joseph Farrell. Although this book is somewhat dated in light of current events, it is important in that it presents the background of worldwide financial manipulation from a hermetic and a magical perspective. Farrell quotes authoritative sources to establish relations between business cycles, planetary alignments, and solar activities, lending credit to astrology, ancient aliens, and even the Pythagorean music of the spheres. The book raises more questions than it answers, but it is fascinating and filled with provocative information such as the investment formula developed by a Chinese communist Tong family member that brought on the 2008 Great Recession, Shades of Fu Manchu. So if you want to know how evil magicians manipulate the stock market and banking, tune in and we'll give you the overview. Now, any book dealing with the international banking establishment or cartel is bound to be controversial, and of course, this one certainly is. However, Farrell views this socio-political can of worms from an occult hermetic perspective, linking high finance and economic boom-and-bust cycles to astrology, alchemy, and even ancient aliens, making the subject something we should not be afraid to look at. So... Trying to be as politically correct as possible, let's have a look. Farrell starts off with the exposure of the red Chinese mastermind behind the 2008 big short Wall Street meltdown. According to Farrell, Chinese econophysicist, a Chinese econophysicist named Li, L-I, a Triad Tong family name, created a mathematical investment formula used by all the Wall Streeters to create the huge toxic mortgage bubble. He intentionally ignored historical business cycle data, assuming that hedge funds would protect the bundled toxic mortgages. Of course, his formula worked until the bubble exploded or imploded. Whereupon, he returned to Red China and had a job in their economic think tank. Now, Farrell cites convincing sources on this, so it is not mere speculation. Now, this leads Farrell into examining the data Lee should have consulted if he had wanted to create an honest investment formula. During the 1930s Depression, President Hoover established a think tank to examine and collect data on business cycles. An an economist named Dewey collected huge amounts of data on business cycles, production, and growth, which indicated a connection to planetary alignments and solar activity. Dewey even mentioned astrology in his official government report. Later, the economic astrologer Robert Gover discovered that the slower outer planet aspects, especially grand squares, accurately predict major depressions. Fortunately, we we have recently developed magical kameas for the outer planets. 
That's we have, the OTA, not Farrell. Farrell later mentions the research of J.H. Nelson for RCA, Radio Corporation of America, on solar phenomenon and planetary alignments, also reflecting an astrological analog. Now, this leads into a discussion of the Russian scientist Korzyrev's theory that the sun and all stars obtain their energy from another dimension. Now, this leads into a discussion. Before we go any further, let me say this about that. The sun, in case we don't realize it, is actually an ongoing hydrogen bomb. Yeah. And and uh, where does it, but hydrogen bombs, as we all know, once they go off, they go off. That's it. So why does the sun keep going? That's what this Russian scientist wanted to uh, was trying to solve that riddle. Well, if there if if the hydrogen bomb like the sun keeps going, you know, this hydrogen furnace, where is it getting its energy? And uh, Korzyrev theorized that it's pulling it out of another dimension, which he's probably right. Uh, now this leads into a discussion of Nikola Tesla's broadcast power experiments and their suppression by international banker J.P. Morgan. And if you remember the documentary on Tesla, Orson Welles played Morgan, and he growled, nobody milks our cow for free. And, of course, you Tesla's Tesla's broadcast power, if it had worked, would have allowed everybody to go outside Take a take a cold roll steel curtain rod, drive it into your yard, put an alligator clip on it, run run the line into your house, and run all your appliances off of broadcast power. And of course, how do you meter how do you meter that if you're an electric company? Which is why, which is why Morgan said nobody milks our cow for free. Now on this line, Farrell puts forward the idea that the international or New World Order bankers seek to suppress all new energy technology and force the world to depend on diminishing fossil fuels. Now, this may have been true up to the turn of the century, but not anymore. And the new 21st century reality tends to date Joseph Farrell's book. Climate change has now been accepted as gospel and even ExxonMobil has been expelled from the club. Let me say something about that. In case you don't know it, ExxonMobil is being attacked by the, by the federal government on the RICO statute, racketeering. And the, 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 um, the justification for that is ExxonMobil has, according to the government, been uh, been funding scientific studies to discredit climate change. Well, um, that, as far as the government's concerned, is a crime because a climate change, which, by the way, derives from Indian science, so, uh, you know, uh, as a Hindu science, uh, uh, is now unlawful to disbelieve. So, consequently, Exxon has been booted out of the... Uh, out of the international club. Now, China coins and prints its own money in order to enough gold to back it up. 
things are much different than they were 10 years ago. However, the Bilderbergers still meet and try to manipulate the changing world. So it's worthwhile to review who they are and how they operate. Farrell devotes a chapter to the Bilderbergers, citing David Rockefeller's globalist agenda and in describing the venues and procedures of their meetings. International banking interests are always key players at these gatherings. He describes the Bilderbergers on page 53 and 54. And let me go to that particular reference and read a little bit of what he has to say. The Bilderberg Group is heavily weighted to a European point of view. Though the United States has the largest single representation of any country sending delegates, the group is similarly weighted to the private sector rather than politics or government, with finance, industry, labor, and academia being the most prominent members. From this, one may reasonably deduce that the Bilderberg Group, while ostensibly attempting to create a united front of these various uh, internal groups and interests for a common cause, nonetheless contains within it two major factions, each of which has in turn two further factions within it. Within these two main factions, one discerns two further factions. This breaks this down as A, the political or government faction, stressing the role of public institutions of power and the bureaucracies that inevitably accompany them, and B, the private finance faction, stressing the role of the private monopoly of money creation and its dominant role influencing other major private sectors, labor, media, the academy, and so on. Now, and let's look at their agenda on page 58. They summarize, summarize this world company means in practical terms about the Bilderberger goals. Accordingly, they want, one, international identity, two, centralized control of the people, three, a zero-growth society, four, a state of perpetual imbalance, five, centralized control of all education, six, centralized control of all foreign and domestic policies, seven, empowerment of the United Nations, eight, Western trading bloc, a NAFTA-like union of North and South America, nine, expansion of NATO, 10, one legal system, 11, one socialist welfare state. And of course, these are the people who created the European Union, um, now, which this is the source of Patty Chayefsky's famous Ned Beatty speech uh, to the Mad Prophet B. 
Steel in Network, 1976, the film, which you can watch on YouTube. Now, in this speech, uh, I'll give you a little background on that. Uh, the movie Network um, uh, came out in 1976. And at that time... Um, the uh, the Saudis controlled OPEC, and they had us uh, American people lined up around the block in their cars uh, to get gasoline. We had gasoline rationing, and 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 we we really thought at that time that the Saudis were trying to <laughs> were really trying to take over the country, and uh, and uh, the the, the, uh, the network, the TV network. Had a had a newscaster by the name of Howard Beale, and uh, Howard Beale uh, had some kind of a stroke, and became a character who they referred to as the Mad Prophet, and he's the one. If you if you remember it, and if you don't, uh, 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 I'll refresh your memory. Uh, he's the one who who called out to all of his listeners or, or viewers on in his TV show and said, I want you to go to the window. I want you to open the window, stick your head out, and yell as loud as you can. I'm mad at what the hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. And, of course, everybody that was, that was watching the show did that. And, uh, and then, <laughs> then the... Uh, uh, the producers that were monitoring the show, they they all uh, they said, "Well, are they are they? Uh, can you hear them? Can you hear them yelling in Atlanta? Oh yes, we can. Can you hear them yelling in in Philadelphia? Yes, we can." And the ratings were going up, and Beale then became a major feature of the network. Uh, however, uh, then what happened was that the Saudi <laughs> Saudi Arabians. Uh, proceeded to buy the network, and uh, and and Beale, working for the network, found out about it, and so he decided to go on his own show, being sponsored by the network, and get all of his his uh, viewers, uh, not just to go to the window, but to write to their congressmen and their senators and and protest the fact that that the <laughs> that the, the Saudi Arabians were just about to buy the network. And uh, well, he did that, and and uh, sure enough, uh, the government uh, uh, stopped the deal. Well, what what happened then was that uh, uh, the head of the corporation, which which owned the network, or the conglomerate that owned the network. Uh, played by the actor Ned Beatty. Now, this is this speech is all written by the very very. A brilliant uh, playwright and screenwriter, Patty Chayefsky, he wrote this, this speech. That Ned Ned Beatty, the actor who is who plays the the chairman of the board of this of this great multinational corporation, calls Beale up to the boardroom, and poor Ned Beale, the old guy, had the stroke, you know, and he's the mad prophet, and he's sitting at one end of this great big boardroom table. And and Ned Beatty, the uh, you know the the, the the king of the corporation, is down at the other end, and Beatty stares down at him, points his finger at him, and he says, "You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mister Beale, and I will not have it." And then he proceeds to tell Beale what 
the world is really all about. And that is, is a real classic. And of course it's all based it's all based on this, this Bilderberger thing that we just read. And Beanie uh proceeds to tell the to tell the Beale uh, you know, that uh, the world is a business, Mr. Beale. There are no nations. There's only IBM and IT&T and, a, and Union Carbide and, and ExxonMobil, at least at that time, and on and on and on. And he said, and you think you have ruined this, this, uh, this Saudi deal? Oh, they, they took millions out of this country, and now they're putting it back. It's the ebb and flow. It's nature, Mr. Beale, and it's been this way ever since we first crawled out of the slime. This speech is a classic. And, you know, as uh, 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 the bad prophet told everybody to shout out, uh, open the window and shout out, I'm mad as own, I'm not going to take it anymore. Well, I'm kind of a mad prophet, too, and I'm telling you all to go on YouTube and look up, look up uh, network Dead Beatty's speech on, on, on network, 19, so look it up on YouTube and listen to it because it will, this, this, this speech is a classic. Okay, so enough of that. Now, Farrell makes it clear uh, this is not a Jewish banking conspiracy and that the Nazis were scapegoating the Jews before and during World War II. The Bilderberg International banksters are British and American Christians and Jews, as he describes on page 36 to 37. Now let's read that, 36 and 37. I thought I had this book pretty well organized here, but I'm not sure. Let's see, number three. Yeah, here it is. But now, let's read this. As will be seen, the struggle between these two camps has erupted throughout history in violence as the latter group that advocates open systems seeks to overturn the dominant order of the money changers, the banksters, based on closed systems or conversely, as the banksters seek to extend their power via closed systems of physics and economics, and they must respond to the inevitable threat posed by civilizations or countries adopting the open ones. Most recently, that struggle erupted in the enormous conflict we call World War II, as Nazi Germany, for whatever its genocidal and murderous crimes against humanity, at least perceived part of the struggle correctly. It was a war to free Germany from a heinous international money power, misrepresented, of course, in the Nazi ideology by the Jews, based in Great Britain and the British Empire and in the United States of America. Thus, Nazi Germany's pursuit of free energy and energy independence, uh, as well as their pursuit of radical alternative hyperdimensional physics, was part of this struggle. And uh, he's referring to the... Uh, um, the Nazis should equally have been concerned with the... He says at the bottom, he says, 
equally been concerned with the Protestant aristocracy of England, America, and Canada, and even in their own country as well. So even though they blamed it, they blamed their their uh, uh, what they blamed World War One and World War Two on the Jews. It was really it was a really uh, they were uh, the Jewish bankers were only part of it, and uh, it, it really was just as. And one of the things that I would like to point out was that when we in, in early in World War Two. Well, right before World War II really got going, uh, we started a program to bail Britain out called Lend-Lease. And and the Lend-Lease Agreement, Roosevelt went out and, and met the, the British and Churchill and, 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 and the British and the British bankers on a, on a British warship out in the Atlantic, and they signed the Lend-Lease Agreement. Where the United States would would uh, give financial and and, and um, military supplies and support to the British, and after they signed this agreement, they all got together on the deck of their ship and sang "Onward, Christian Soldiers." Uh, so uh, the idea, as I say, the idea that this was all a big big Jewish thing is is is, is certainly not true. Um, now. That said, um, Farrell makes it clear this was not a Jewish banking conspiracy, and uh, the Bilderberg International Banksters were British and American Christians and Jews, as he describes. And uh, this is especially important for us here in the United States because America is still controlled by the international banking establishment. The banksters, to use Farrell's term, for as we know, our Federal Reserve Bank is not federal and hasn't been since 1913, and it's been owned and operated by private banking interests. And even if you are a globalist, you have to admit that this is not very democratic. Now, central to Farrell's thesis is the concept of nationalism versus globalism. This transcends socialism versus capitalism. He believes that a nation, a people, regardless of whether they're, they're socialist or capitalist, should control and issue their own money. He cites the example of colonial America. Now, this, now, now what we're going to get into right now is something I didn't know and something I don't think a lot of you that are listening to this are going to know, but this is the truth. He cites the example of colonial America, which issued its own money, activity of its own agriculture, industry, and trade until England passed a law forcing the colonies to accept only its currency. This brought on an economic depression in the colonies and was the direct cause of the American Revolution. Now, let's, uh, read, what, let's read what Benjamin Franklin said regarding this uh, to the British, British Parliament. And... and What an old Ben. That old Ben was a member of the Hellfire Club. <laughs> we did a show on that. Um, and he's giving this he's giving this talk to the to the British Parliament back back in the in, in the early seven you know, in the middle seventeen hundreds. In the colonies we issue our own money. It's called colonial script. 
we issue it to pay the government's approved expenses and charities. And we make sure it is issued in proper proportions to make the goods pass easily from the producers to the consumers. In this manner, creating for ourselves our own paper money, we control its purchasing power, and we have no interest to pay to anyone. You see, a legitimate government can both spend and lend money into circulation, while banks can only lend significant amounts of their promissory banknotes. For they can neither give away nor spend but a tiny fraction of the money people need. Thus, when your banks here in England place money in circulation, there is always a debt principle to be returned and usury to be paid. The result is that you have always too little credit in circulation to give the workers full employment. You do not have too many workers. You have too little money in circulation. And that which circulates all bears the endless burden of unpayable debt and usury. Franklin had seen the essential criminality and fraud that the central banking from the, gov- from the government pursuing a policy of monetizing the debt uh, only means that they are beholden to private monopoly, which issues debt as money whereas the colonial experience and the very ancient experience, and by the way, is that our colonial policy was based on the, on the ancient original, original origin of money, which, we'll, which we will get to shortly. Uh, it was true money, was credit on the productive surplus of the state, and hence only the state could issue it. Needless to say, England's banksters We're not about to allow this situation to continue, allowing the colonists to gain prosperity without enriching their own parasitic coffers. Thus, the Bank of England parlayed its influence in Parliament to get the 1764 Currency Act passed, which made it illegal for the colonies to issue their own money. And predictably, as Franklin observed a year later, the streets of the colonies were filled with the unemployed, and beggars, and it was this substitution of debt as money, the replacement of real money by the facsimile of money, that, according to Franklin, was the real cause of the revolution. I never knew that before I read this, but I know it now. They try to manipulate the changing world. It's worthwhile to read. Yeah. Uh, let me see what over here. Uh, hmm. Going back to ancient history. Now, this is this is related to what we just read. Going back to ancient history, Farrell establishes that money was first developed by the Babylonians and the Egyptians. It was originally issued by the king 
based on the amount of surplus grain in the royal warehouses. It goes back to our bread and beer conspiracy, doesn't it? This was clay tablet money. The Egyptians had gold mines and began to develop precious metal as the basis of their exchange. This is where gold mining and bullion trading became privatized, subcontracted by the government to private families and groups. These agencies soon became associated with the temples and set a pattern that continued for thousands of years. Recall now that alchemy means the art of chem, and chem was another word for Egypt. Many Egyptian alchemists were actually counterfeiters with gold and silver-plated base metals. Gold and silver coins could be struck for nations, but the precious metal and the coinage was handled by the private bullion brokers, the temple bankers with the debt uh, attached to them. The pattern still rules the Western world was established thousands of years ago. Nations can and do break free of this debt burden system. Sparta in ancient Greece went its own way, and ancient Rome also created its own money. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus said. He also threw the money lenders out of the temple, which preserved its money changers out of the temple, which preserved its power for thousands of years. The Roman Empire preserved its power for thousands of years by, by issuing its own money. But you must have a strong military power to survive if you're going to do this, as both Sparta and Rome had. And Sparta, of course, set the, set the, the, the model for that. Um, we have often tried in America, now this is, this is important, we have often tried in America to assert our financial independence. First, before the revolution. Next, during the war between the states, when President Lincoln printed Union greenbacks to finance the war and was assassinated. And um, regarding that, we're going to read a quote from uh, Otto Bismarck concerning that and uh, that particular incident. Otto Bismarck was the famous... Um, Premier of Germany at, at, uh, in the 1870s. Um, the Depression of the 1870s and the Banksters. German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck wrote a curious thing in 1876 about the fiscal policies of the Lincoln administration. I know of absolute certainty that the division of the United States into federations of equal force was decided long before the Civil War by the high financial powers of Europe. These bankers were afraid that the United States, if they remained in one block, as one nation, would attain economic and financial independence, which would upset their financial domination over Europe and the world. Of course, in the inner circle of finance, the voice of the international bankers prevailed. They saw 
an opportunity for prodigious booty if they could substitute two feeble democracies burdened with debt to the financiers in place of a vigorous republic sufficient unto herself. Therefore, they sent their emissaries into the field to exploit the question of slavery and to drive a wedge between the two parts of the Union. The rupture between the North and the South became inevitable. The masters of European finance employed all of their forces to bring it about and to turn it to their advantage. And, of course, there was just one problem. President Lincoln refused to go into debt to the private class of banksters to fund the Northern effort in the Civil War. Chancellor Bismarck's comment is worth citing. The government and the nation escaped the plots of the foreign financiers. They understood at once that the United States would escape their grip. The debt of Lincoln was resolved upon. Well, that that dispels the idea that Lincoln was shot by Stuart and Son, who wanted to, because Lincoln wanted to send the send the freed slaves back to Africa, and I, that's one of the one one theory that. Stuart and Staunton uh, wanted to exploit the South, and, and which, of course, they did, and that they, sh- they shot Lincoln because he was going to send all the slaves back to, back to Africa. But, uh, but this, this, this is what Bismarck says is most probably what really happened. Um, now, later, in American history. In 1881, President James Garfield tried to do to do this again, to, to, to go back to letting the country control, control its money. He declared in 1881, and let's, uh, let's read his quote here. This is all history now. This isn't stuff Farrell's making up. Um, in 1881, James Garfield became president of the United States of America. Garfield proclaimed, Whosoever controls the volume of money in any country is the absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. And as noted, Garfield was murdered not long after releasing this statement. When he was less than four months into his presidency. Now, Johnny Cash has a Nice song about that. Mr. Garfield has been shot. Um, and uh, now, President John F. Kennedy declared that he wanted to end the Federal Reserve. He even had a bill with a number, one, I believe it's a bill 11,000 or something like that. Uh, he even, even prepared a bill to end the Federal Reserve. And shortly thereafter, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. 
Now, hopefully, a future president will be able to accomplish what these brave men died for, to truly make us the land of the free and the brave. Hopefully, somebody will be able to do that. Now, we should also mention that Pharaoh believes, along with Robert Oppenheimer and Richard Shaver, that the earth had a super ancient antediluvian high-tech civilization that even survived an interplanetary atomic war. And you might have a look at our film, Beyond Lemuria, uh, for similar concepts and ideas. Now, Pharaoh proposes that the astrology and alchemy that we that have come down to us are cargo cultish survivals of very sophisticated prehistoric sciences. Now, in line with this, I want you to imagine a CAD CAM armillary sphere on your computer screen. And it can replicate all of the various influences of planetary alignments, and it can vector them in any direction. Think about that. So one could even use this for elective astrology, or perhaps... I know this is going to be this 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 is not going to be a popular term weaponized astrology. This would also apply to financial manipulation, as in uh, Lee's Big Short formula. Think also of the vast interdimensional energy sources we could tap into and deploy, like the Russian uh, Kozarev and, and Tesla, which leaves us to wonder how much of this ancient magic we are still able to manipulate with the surviving shadow images and memories of the mighty systems that have come down to us through the ages. Even though Joseph Carroll's book is dated in view of today's global realities, it still makes a strong point. We, the American people, need to take control of our own house and make ourselves strong enough to protect it. And if we fail to do this, we as a nation and a people will go into the night, and perhaps not quietly. So, um, next week, next week, we are going to have uh, have Joe Carson, uh, uh, the uh, the Amatrix of Farfaria, uh with us uh, uh, to talk about her new book. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe I can get her to say a few words about that. That our joke. Do you think you, you, you would you like to would you like to tell us a little bit about the book? Well, we got we got some time left. Yeah. Uh, She's giving it to me. <laughs> the Green Pulse Oracle, a tool for eco-psychic insight by Joe Carson, featuring the art and writings drawn from the works of Frederick McClure and Adams. This is, is um, an absolutely beautiful book. and It's a, it's a form of divination that, that in, in some ways uh, derives, at least uh, through Fred, from uh, Robert Graves' White Goddess. Um, and, um, and it's the, and the tree alphabet. And, uh, uh, you know, Joe, we want to say a a little bit about it. Go ahead. All right. 
I'm being, my arm is being twisted. Um, and the book will be coming with a set of markers that we call leaves, uh, which each of them has on it a symbol of um, and kind of an interesting esoteric symbol that Fred Adams devised. And each symbol represents a letter in the alphabet called Oam, which is the traditional, very, very ancient uh, alphabet of Ireland. And the Oam have, like many of the really ancient alphabets, have um, individual meanings that are um, having to do with life and cycles of life and change and energies within people's lives, one consults the OM in the same way that one might consult the I Ching to understand what are the forces at play uh, if you have a particular given question that you want to ask. So as a system of divination, one selects uh, blindly the particular markers that you're going to use and then turns them over and reads them um, and looks up the answers in the book. And after a while using them, one becomes very familiar with them. The symbols themselves are quite lovely and evoke aspects of nature um, and magic and the tree of life and many other things. Um, And the names of the symbols are the ones that go with the OM language. So that just gives you a little tiny taste or flavor of what the book is, and um, I'll hand the, the uh, device back to Polk. Uh, thank you, Lady Joe, and, and uh, um, we're, looking for, we're looking forward to that. Uh, and this is, this is a beautiful book with Fred's art and his, uh, and his uh, wonderful uh, diagrams, uh, the Enneosphere and... and, and uh, um, which is which is derived from the uh, original uh, Crowder Report Rose Cross attributed to Cagliostro, and which Fred did, did a marvelous, marvelous work with this with this symbol. Anyway, so next week uh, we look forward to that. And meanwhile, uh, good magic and uh, and uh, you know remember remember. We need to we need to we need to federalize the Fed. So so let's uh, let's hope we can we can manage that. Okay, and and uh, good evening and uh, good magic. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.